0: hello and welcome to pocket theology this is martin and jason here jason greet the people greetings earthlings bingo el ringo that's what we're looking for this week we are going to be talking about the tower of babel so for those of you that are not super familiar with this story it is in the beginning parts of genesis it's in chapter 11 right jason 10 or 11. It's right before Abraham. It's 11. And yeah, it's immediately before Abraham. That's what I thought. So we're going to talk about the story a little bit because it serves a couple of interesting purposes. Um, And that's actually what we're going to talk about is the story kind of acts like an onion. There's different layers to it. And so uh, we just kind of want to go through some of those with you guys. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Full disclosure, this is Jason's idea. Um, So I'm going to actually let Jason start off with the first layer.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, I kind of want to explain just, like, why I thought this was a good idea. If you listen to, like, the last two episodes, and one of those episodes, we were talking, and Martin brings up the Tower of Babel, and says something to the effect of, like, the point of the story is... This is where different languages and ethnic groups come from. And I just responded. I don't think that's the entire point. And I don't even think that's the main point, but we should do an episode on it. So I I kind of there are certain passages, certain stories in scriptures, especially in the Old Testament that we get taught when we're young. And then they don't get preached very often, if at all. And they just kind of get left out there. Like Samson's story is one of them. Uh, a lot of King David stories fall in that category. People don't preach about it very often. You just get told it in Sunday school, and then they leave it alone. And then the Tower of Babel's one. I've only ever heard one sermon. Grew up in the church. Only ever heard one sermon on the Tower of Babel. I've actually never preached on it, like live audience on a stage. So it's just a good opportunity to go back to a story that maybe a lot of you guys know from like when you were young, but now we're going to revisit it and kind of be like, all right, there's the language and ethnicity thing, but there's a lot more going on here
0: so martin do you just want me to go ahead and read the story yeah let's do that so that everyone knows what's going on okay so we'll go ahead and uh well
1: a little bit of background all that's happened so far in the entire bible's genesis is the first book is god creates the universe he makes humans in perfect unity uh, with him and with one another and in perfect difference so there's male and female there are differences but it is perfect it is harmonious there's peace Uh, and they're made in the image of god humans are safe until they rebel against him then they're in danger from various threats and they can die which they were seemingly not capable of dying before humans spiral further and further into violence and murder and sexual sin and all sorts of different issues eventually god gets sick of it and he floods the world and preserves only one family now that phrase the world could be a regional statement and we've talked before about A lot of Christians think that this is a purely metaphorical story. Anyways, that not a debate we're going to rehash here. Go back and listen to our episode on that. Uh, But he preserves one family, Noah's family, and this family has many descendants. And the names, if you read them, some of them sound very familiar, like he has a child named Canaan and he has another child named Egypt or a descendant rather named Egypt. And so they have all these different people who are named after actual nations and regions that really exist or rather the other way around. The regions are named after them. The idea is from Noah comes all these descendants that are the patriarchs of all of these people groups we're going to run into in the rest of scripture. In other words, everyone descends from him. And he has in that passage 70 descendants left listed. 70 and 10 both being numbers that in different ways symbolize completion or perfection. Uh, So seven times 10, 70, he has 70 descendants. That's a symbolic number. Then you end up in this story. These descendants of Noah are being scattered throughout the world. They're going out and they're populating the world just like they're supposed to in Genesis, but they're kind of messed up people. They're not the good kind of people that God wants them to be, even after the flood. In fact, the last thing that God says in the flood narrative, or one of the last things he says in this flood story, is never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from their youth. So he does this huge flood to cleanse the world and preserves this one family. It's supposed to be holy and do things right. And he says, they're still evil, even from childhood, from the moment they're born. They're just evil, messed up people. And I'm just going to have to get used to it. I'm going to have to learn to work with them. Uh, So these evil, messed up people go out and eventually some of them find a nice little plains area and they look around and they say, we have mud and we have fire, and we have flat ground, let's start building. And that's where we pick up in Genesis chapter 11, which reads this way. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build a city for ourselves with a tower that reaches to the heavens, or whose head is in the heavens, literally, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing that they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them from there over all of the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And that word Babel means or sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. So there's that's why it's called Babel, because the Lord confused them. So that's the story. That's the Tower of Babel. So, Martin, what's the point of the Tower of Babel or a point,
0: rather, of the Tower of Babel? There's a couple of points. Um, Let's first start off with and this is usually what people are going to talk about when they talk about the story. Um, It was prideful arrogance that got them to start this process that said we could build a tower so high that we could see God in the heavens. Right. Yeah. I actually, I want to, I want to count, I want to start somewhere else before we get that there. Cause
1: yeah, when you do hear it taught to adults, that's normally, or even teenagers, that's normally how it's taught. But when you get taught this as like a five-year-old in Sunday school, right? If your church still does Sunday school. Then it's the Tower of Babel tells us where all the languages and all the different races come from. And then they just stop. Like, that's the whole story. And that is, in some sense, what the story does. It gives a mythology to explain. And again, remember, mythology, when we use that term, we're talking about like, a type of writing, a type of story. It doesn't necessarily mean something's true or false. It's just a type of writing. It gives a mythology to explain why do the people over there look different than me and sound different than me? And this is not the only mythology given in Genesis to explain that. The chapter right before that I mentioned a minute ago lists all these descendants of Noah that just so happen to have the same names as actual city-states and empires and regions. Because that's another way of explaining, where do people come from? Well, we all descended from the same person. But over time, we kind of split up and went different ways. And they started worshiping different gods, but we worship the true God. So it's our duty to continue to worship and serve the true God. And they're profligates and pagans because they serve false ones. That's another... With implications that follow from it. Another mythology that Genesis offers for where different people come from. But also sometimes it just doesn't offer explanation. Like Adam and Eve's children marry people. And we don't know who the heck these people are or where they came from. They're just their sisters. It's their sisters. Some people would say that. That Adam and Eve have bunches of children that just aren't mentioned. And they marry their own sisters and God just protects them from the consequences of inbreeding. But the reality is the story just doesn't seem to care or explain where the other people come from. It just assumes there's people there for some reason. So there's a lot of different mythologies explain where different people groups come from. And then a few in Genesis that just don't care and don't say and just don't think it's important. So that's one base level. But then, yeah, kind of moving up a step from there, going a little bit deeper, I think.
0: I'm going to add just a little bit to the language thing. So, Okay, go for it. One of the reasons that this gets really popular is the way that certain scholars read this section of Genesis. So for the most part, Genesis is broken up into sections based on who you're following. The only one that it doesn't really do that is Genesis 1 through 11. And the way that I teach this section, the way that I think Jason teaches this section, and the way that a lot of other scholars teach this section is that the point of this is to set your worldview to understand the rest of your Bible. So when okay. so you... let me
1: Let me clarify what you just said a minute ago about the sections. Martin's saying different teachers will divide after chapter 11, will have all sorts of different ways of dividing up how how genesis is constructed like some are going to divide it up based on who they think wrote that section because they don't think it was all written by moses that's like the traditional evangelical answer but a lot of people disagree with that for various reasons they might divide it up based on what story is being told uh what character is the main focus they might divide it up by when they think it was written but pretty much everyone agrees even if they think it came from different sources that talking about Genesis one through 11 as a unit is a very helpful way to think of it. And that is because of
0: what Martin is, is about to address. Yeah. So uh, when people teach that one through 11 are one unit in Genesis, it's usually because this is going to set the basis that you have to use to understand the rest of your Bible. So, for instance, John chapter 1 means absolutely nothing without Genesis 1 through 3. Or it means something, but it's just not the same, right? Mm -hmm. The Old Testament, especially in Judges, when it talks about everyone being crooked in God's eyes, everyone being sinful, everyone uh, doing what was right in their own eyes is the way I think the NIV puts it. Yeah, you can see that through the book of Judges. But it's built off of the story of Cain and Abel when we start to see that sin really influences the way that we interact with people. When you read about the tabernacle or the temple and
1: you're like, why does God have a weird thing for plants and pomegranates and stuff like that? It doesn't make sense unless you read Genesis 1 through 3 and go, oh. Cause the temple and the tabernacle are like many like model sized gardens and they're supposed to remind you of the garden of Eden where God walked in the cool
0: of the day with his creation. Yeah. And so, and when you get into why, you know, why are things separated by water or why is there so much water when you look at the world? Um, people tend to look at Noah and his story. They also look at that for why people suck, but yeah. um,
1: Yeah. So there's, and we've addressed this in the past. There's different teachers that will teach that either Genesis one through 11 is entirely 100% literal or mostly literal, but the time scales are funky. So you shouldn't read it like, like necessarily the earth was made in seven days and it was 6,000 years ago or whatever. That there's some like time missing but the stories are still literally true and then others that will say the stories are maybe based in history and reflect real historical truths but some of the characters or many of the characters might be invented and it's really more about the emphasis of the stories and i think really regardless of which view you take you should say The main thing at issue here is not history. Like, is this historically true or not? It's what's the theological truth. What is the Bible trying to tell me by telling me this
0: story? And so, like Jason mentioned, in chapter 10, there's a list of Noah's descendants, including a lot of people who have the same name as regions or states or countries that end up being formed. And that tells us that there are other people groups that families settle down and they begin to kind of, they stay stationary. They've they've got property that they're gonna stick to. But when you read the Tower of Babel story in the lens of like, what is this trying to teach me to understand the rest of the Bible? What is this teaching me about the way the world works? It usually gets pointed to that, well, this explains why we have different languages. This is why my neighbors speak Spanish and my cousins speak uh, German, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so that's that's the Sunday school in air quotes story, mm-hmm. um, the Sunday school point, I guess. But it really fits into that uh, that worldview teaching. Yeah.
1: So you can read this as chapter 11 is a here's your fancy SAT word for the day. An interpolation. That is a story that is inserted into the text for whatever reason. Uh, that doesn't necessarily fit the the flow that's being laid out by the story. And there's a lot of interpolations in Genesis. There's a one after Cain's story in Genesis 4 where you have this long genealogy coming from Cain. And then it jumps backwards in time, like seven generations, and says, "Oh yeah, by the way, Adam and Eve had other kids too." And it's like, "What the heck is that's an interpolation? It, it's not following the flow of the text. It's inserted into an otherwise smooth story." Uh, there's reason for for these sorts of things. They're clarifications. They're alternative stories that explain the same thing, or they're meant, they're inserted as a way of uh, giving tension to the story. So I'm going to tell you you know, two plus two is four, but then I'm going to turn around and tell you, but sometimes maybe it's not, you know, maybe not the best example ever because two plus two is always four, but you get the point. Like when these interpolations happen, when there's a story that's inserted, that doesn't fit the flow of the text. There's a reason why it was inserted where it is. There's a reason why the final shapers of Genesis, whoever that is, whether that's Moses, just sitting down and writing and want to go, or whether that's a group of editors, you know, Hundreds, thousands of years later, whatever it is, there's a reason why they wanted this story where it is, especially right after another founding myth for Babylon, which we'll get to why the Tower of Babel is Babylon and why it's not the only founding myth for Babylon
0: in Genesis in a minute here. So let's talk about the pride and arrogance angle really quick, and then we'll jump into that.
1: Yeah, I'm really chomping at the bit to get to to get this stuff. So, yeah, let's let's just go ahead and move forward. <laughs> I can tell, buddy. I love this. I love this story as an adult. As a kid, I never understood it. I thought it was weird. But as an adult, I'm like, oh, this story is terrific. It says a lot about who
0: people are. But, yeah,
1: let's do pride and arrogance. Give, give me give me the lowdown on that, Martin.
0: So, I never had this story taught to me as a child. I heard okay. it maybe, like once or twice when i was in like middle school high school but that was about it when i did it was usually about how the people thought that they could be like god by building a giant tower and getting to where he was really again worldview setting the people kind of saw themselves as the center of the world the world revolves around me so i should be able to have all of the power i should be able to be where god is and control everything right i should be able to uh and it kind of reminds me of the movie bruce almighty with jim carrey you remember that movie jason
1: very faintly
0: yes so the premise is this dude like can't remember if he has just like a crappy life but he basically says god what the heck are you doing and then god shows up in the form of morgan freeman of course and says, well, hey, man, you think you could do better because I need a vacation and gives him the power of God. So he gets all of the prayers in his prayer email thing. Um, he gets to just do ridiculous stuff. He creates a breeze that blows a lady's skirt up at one point, which I was like, that is exactly how humanity would use that power. Like, that is exactly how that would be used. Um, but the w- one scene that I always remember is when, uh, he makes the monkey come out of the dude's butt. You're looking at me funny. You don't remember I'm kind of happy I don't. Oh my gosh. It crawls back up, which is the worst part. It's, it's the idea that humans always seem to think that they could do a better job at God's job. That they could do better than God himself could if we were in control of everything. Then the world would be such a better place. But in reality, we're also very selfish people. It would only be a better place for us. So I might, you know, make everything work for me. The problem is, if everything goes my way, it may not go Jason's way, right? And it may not go my neighbor's way. It may not go the way of the people I work with. So it's really interesting to see that the people seem to think that they could get to the level of God and they would be ready to take the reins. They would be ready to be God themselves.
1: Yeah. There's a two, two quotes that are pretty famous that come to mind. There's one that's anonymous. If I recall correctly, it was like scratched into a wall or a bedpost or something in a concentration camp. And it was, um, If God exists, he owes me an apology. There's another quote that's much longer that I do not have memorized that I believe is at the beginning of The God Delusion, which is a book by Richard Dawkins that is a rough paraphrase. Uh, The God of the Bible is the most unpleasant, racist, sexist, bigoted, prideful, etc. monster in all of fiction. That's one that you'll hear brought up pretty Frequently, just as an insult, because it's not actually saying anything worthwhile, but it's brought up as an insult. The point of both of these sentiments is there is a notable proportion of humanity that thinks, like Martin said, if I had God's power, I could do a better job than him. Like, I know better, which is ridiculous when you think about it, say I know better than an all knowing being like. That's one of the most ridiculous things you can say. That's not how we think of it. We think of God as this selfish jerk that's just floating out there in the clouds. And why is he not doing the things I want him to do? Why isn't he solving world hunger? Why isn't he, you know, curing childhood cancer? Why isn't he... Like, these are good things that we are good to want. But we're like, why is he not doing things my way? Why is he not doing them on my schedule? I can do better than him. If I had his powers, I would do better. And that sort of theme I want to choose my own path I want to do things my own way I can do things better than God is laced throughout scripture and it's especially heavy in the early chapters of Genesis that's really the original sin because the tree Martin that they eat from that they're not supposed to eat from what is it called what's the title or the name of the tree
0: it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil
1: yeah so when you eat the fruit It gives you the ability to decide for yourself what is good and what is evil. Prior to them eating that fruit, who decided what was good and what was evil? God. Yeah. So by taking the fruit and eating, Adam and Eve, at the prompting of the snake, are saying, I would do a better job deciding what is good and what is evil for myself than God would. Which really is at its core what we're saying every time we sin. At least when we knowingly sin. We're saying, God, I know I'm not supposed to, but you don't get it. You don't get why it's it's really okay. Even though I know it's supposed to be wrong, like it's okay this time. It's all right that I'm flipping this person off because they sped past me. I don't like the way they're driving. It's okay that I'm committing a sexual sin because I'm under a lot of stress at work. It's okay that I'm screaming at my spouse because they shouldn't have behaved the way that they're behaving or whatever. We make these excuses, and ultimately, at our core, what we're saying is, God, I know better than you. God, if I had your power, I could do better than you. So I'm going to take your role of deciding what is good and what is evil. I'm going to do it for myself. And that's what these people are doing in the Tower of Babel story. They're building a city with this giant tower that may not be what you and I think of as a tower. It might be what's called a ziggurat. Now, this is a little bit of assumption here. There's a phrase in here uh, that I pointed out. A tower that reaches into the heavens and the NIV is really a tower that's head is in the heavens. Some people have claimed, although I can't confirm it, that this phrase is only used in ancient literature to refer to ziggurats. Ziggurats are these giant pyramid shaped buildings that were essentially honey pots meant to trap gods. So you would build a ziggurat, you would fill it with lavish goods. And then when a God came down to like, check out what's going on, you'd seal the top. And now the God is stuck there and that's their temple and they have to bless you. So it's a way of manipulating gods into doing what, what you want them to do. So they build this giant tower, this giant ziggurat, and they're trying to put its head in the heavens. They're trying to potentially trap God, or at the very least, they're trying to build something so monumental people remember them. That's what they explicitly say, that they want to make a name for themselves and to not be scattered in verse four. They're trying to, cre- to seize power, either by trapping a god, by creating a name for themselves, this massive city that no one can challenge, by making sure that all these powerful, unified people, because to build something this giant, you have to be a powerful people. We want to make sure we don't get spread out, we don't get scattered, we don't get broken up into smaller people groups that aren't as strong. We want to make sure we have somewhere to gather. Whatever they're doing, whatever the details of it is, they're trying to preserve power for themselves. They're trying to, in a sense, make themselves like God. There's more theming we'll get into in a minute with what cities symbolize in the Bible, especially in Genesis, that really underlines that point of they're trying to make themselves like God. But I don't want to go that far just yet until Martin and I both have had our our turn to say everything we have to say on this section. But yeah, this is a this is a prideful, arrogant moment that these people are having trying to build this this giant monument that they'll be remembered by, potentially trying to manipulate or trap God. Martin, do you have anything else that you want to add? Anything else that you think we need to underline here?
0: I don't think so, but I want to take a second and just recap our two layers so far before we jump into the third. Go for it. So the first layer tells us this is why my neighbor talks funny. That's the way I describe this. Uh, it's the reason that we had to learn different languages in school or when traveling because my neighbor's going to talk funny and I need to know what they're saying. Um, the second layer is pride and arrogance. Uh, the people, which the people always seem to be prideful and arrogant, but these people seem to think that they could do jobs better or God's job better than him. And they wanted to Take the power. They wanted to take the ability. So, our first layer is language. Our second layer, pride. Jason, why don't you jump into the third layer for us?
1: So, the third layer is less of a specific layer of meaning in this chapter. It kind of underlines that second point. That this is about pride and arrogance and power and people seizing power for the wrong reason. But it has to do with what a city symbolizes. Throughout the scriptures, and especially in the Old Testament, and especially in Genesis. So I'm going to do a little Bible trivia here. Martin, do you remember who the founder of the first city is?
0: I can't say that I do, but I remember Melchizedek being a priest in some weird old city. So he's a priest in Jerusalem, although it's called
1: Salem. And that's later. That's in the time of Abraham. So it's, it's going to be just a few chapters ahead.
0: I do remember Abraham. now. It's Cain when it he is. gets scared of people murdering him.
1: Yes. So here's the picture. Cain is born outside of Eden, but close to it. That seems to be the picture anyways. So Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden. They have two kids, Abel and Cain, but they're living close to Eden. And this is interesting because it almost parallels the imagery we see of Israel as they're traveling through the desert through the wilderness, where the garden place the place that's taking the place of Eden is the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And that's where God's presence is and only a few people are allowed in it. And then the tribe that's immediately outside of it on all sides is the Levites. And these are the priests and then the helpers of the priests, they're all from the same tribes, the priest is just the priests are a specific family descended from Aaron related to Moses. So Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's children are allowed in the tabernacle proper. The outer courts, Levites are permitted in. And then camping outside of the walls of the tabernacle are all the rest of the Levites that aren't actively working in it. Outside of that is all the other tribes arranged in a certain order. So you have Adam and Eve and their children in the Levite position. They're just outside of the garden place. They're in it. They used to be in it. They're not anymore. At least Adam and Eve used to be in it. They got kicked out. But now they're like right next to it. And there's still immense blessing. And this is a theme throughout the scriptures. Being in the presence of God gives you the opportunity for immense blessing or for immense danger. So it's it's an awful thing in the classical sense of the word. It is an awe-filled thing to be in the presence of God. Because it's either going to go real good or really bad. And there's not much in between.
0: And it all kind of depends on like the level of respect or like honor that you give to him. Mm-hmm. So like there's the example in Leviticus of Aaron's sons who made weird fire in the uh, the temple or the tabernacle at the time.
1: That is and, actually the phrase for anyone listening. It's strange yeah. fire or weird fire,
0: foreign fire. Yeah, and they're struck dead immediately. Yeah. They're burned up by it if I remember correctly. Yeah, so like there's one of two ways it goes almost every time it goes really well. When you like do the job of humanity in my opinion, which is to represent God. Well, Mm -hmm. Uh, and when you don't represent God, well, you tend to die when you're in his presence. Yeah. But it's
1: also an opportunity for immense blessing. So like, a story a little bit later on in first Chronicles that really like encapsulates this short version of the story. David is trying to transport the Ark, which now symbolizes God's presence. He's trying to transport the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, which he has recently captured and made his capital city. And they're transporting it incorrectly, explicitly against the instructions they're given in the Torah for how to transport it. And the oxen that are dragging it in a cart stumble and it shakes and this guy reaches his hand out his name's uzza reaches his head out to try to stop the cart from toppling over and as soon as he touches the ark he's struck dead and the reason for this is they're transporting the ark incorrectly they're trying they're bringing it into the the city because they think by having it in the city it's going to bless them and so they're trying to manipulate god which is a big no-no and then he's not showing any respect for the ark because you're not supposed to freaking touch it you're only supposed to touch the poles that are attached to it And when the cart shakes, like he should be treating this like it's a cauldron of molten lava. Like he should be scared of it. And he shows no respect and just sticks his hand out and touches it. So God strikes him dead. So you act wrong and you get punished. David is scared of it because he watched this guy get struck dead and it's ruining his party. So he ships it off to another guy's house, Obed-Edom, who's a Gittite. And it remains there for several months. And while it's there, the Lord blesses Obed-Edom because he's in God's presence, and he is behaving rightly. He's not doing anything wrong. He's taking care of the ark. He's doing what he's supposed to do. So God blesses him. So if you're in God's presence, you either get blessed or you get hurt, just depending on whether or not you act right. So that should be both encouraging and scary for all of us. Adam and Eve are in this position. They're right outside of Edom. They're close to God's presence, and they have these children, Cain and Abel. Abel is being blessed by God because he's acting rightly. He's offering good sacrifices. He's worshiping God properly. Cain isn't. And rather than changing his behavior, he gets angry and he kills his brother. He's the first person in the biblical account, the first murderer. God comes to him, says, Cain, what the heck's wrong with you? Cain tries to deny it and say, oh, I have no idea what happened to him. And God's like, I'm God. I know what's going on. The blood of your brother cries out from the ground to me. There's a pun there in Hebrew that's a lot of fun. And he curses Cain and says, you're going to be a wanderer and a vagrant. And Cain says, the punishment is too much. When people find me, they'll kill me, which is weird because the story doesn't tell you where these people come from. Like I said earlier, there's just people out there and he's scared of them. And he says, they're going to know I'm a murderer and they're going to murder me. And God says, don't worry, I'm going to give you this mark and the mark is going to protect you. Because anyone who sees the mark will know that if they kill you, I will avenge you seven times over on them. He doesn't explain what that means because you can't kill someone seven times. But basically, the idea is I'm going to give this mark to you that will make sure that other people will leave you alone. So you won't die, even though you deserve it. But you are going to be a wanderer. You're going to suffer for what you've done. And then he sends him away into Nod. Nod means the land of wandering, which is hilarious. So he's a wanderer in the land of wandering. And he finds this woman. And he knows her in the biblical sense, and they have kids, and he's still scared. And it says he built himself a city. And the word for city, correct me if I pronounce it wrong, is air, right? Sounds like the word for ear almost. And in Hebrew, this does not mean like when we think of a city, we think it's like a, a big settlement with a lot of people. The thing that makes a city a city in Hebrew and in the ancient in, in the ancient sense is whether or not it has walls. Martin, why would you need a wall on your city? You need a wall because people are going to fight you. Yeah, a wall is to keep the people out that are trying to kill you. So Cain builds a city because he doesn't trust God to protect him. Then we get Cain's lineage, and eventually we get to this guy named Lamech. And Lamech is just like a complete turd. (laughs) He's the first polygamist. He takes two wives instead of one. No one else had done that before. And you weren't supposed to do that. Seemingly, it's never explicitly stated, but that seems to be the intention that you're not supposed to do that. And he does anyways. And he has lots of children and he brags about killing people because they've insulted him because they've caused some sort of physical or emotional harm to him. So he just kills people like it's a screw you. And the idea that gets painted here with Cain City, which is named Enoch after his child, Is that when people gather and make cities cities are born out of the consequences of sin cities are only built walled fortresses are only built because of the consequences of sin. And then what they produce is sinful people that do things they shouldn't do like they become polygamists they inflict sexual violence on people they inflict physical violence on people. And this is the pattern that gets painted. This is this is how cities are. And it gets reinforced over and over and over again in scripture. So finally, when we show up to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, we have a group of people. After God has purified the world and then the people that he saved are just as sinful as the people he just killed. And he's like, you know, you are all messed up. And I'm just going to have to learn to work with you despite how messed up you are. So go on your way, be fruitful, multiply, and we'll see if we can make something good out of you yet. And these people show up to this land, the land of Shinar, which is another name for the location the city of Babylon is in. The plains of Shinar, that's where Babylon is, like the actual historical city Babylon. That's where it's located. So they show up in Babylon before Babylon exists. And they say, hey, let's build a city. And let's build this giant tower and we won't be scattered and we'll maintain our power. There's another guy I mentioned just the chapter before who also founds Babylon, which is weird. There's two stories about the founding of Babylon. Now you could read it as Genesis 10 gives you the thousand foot view. This is the guy that was in charge. His name's Nimrod. So you can read it as Genesis 10 gives you the thousand foot view. And Genesis 11 is like, this is the more detailed story of how it happened. Or you can read it as these are two separate stories that are both making separate points that shouldn't be read both as history. Whichever way you choose to read it, in Genesis 10, verse 8 and onward, Cush, this is a descendant of Noah, Cush was the father of Nimrod who became a mighty warrior on the earth. And this term mighty warrior is the word gibberim, which refers to people that are elsewhere called the Nephilim. Um, that have been traditionally understood to be the children of fallen angels with female humans, which is very bizarre to us, but that's the way that I read it. And I understand it's bizarre and uncomfortable, but I think that's the best way to read it. Other people have other interpretations, but that's, we're going to stick with. So Nimrod is for all intents and purposes, a half demonic mighty warrior. And he is a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that is why it is said, this is verse nine. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kaline in Shinar. So he builds this group of cities. And the first one among it is Babylon in the plains of Shinar. And then the next chapter says, hey, these people came to the plains of Shinar and they built this giant evil city. Well, the only giant evil city that the Israelites ever would have thought of in the plains of Shinar is Babylon. So these people come together, they build this giant city, they build Babylon, and Babylon continues to be a pain in everyone's rear end for the rest of Scripture. Either literally the city of Babylon, or these like spiritual descendants of Babylon. like Rome in Revelation is called Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes, to use a more socially acceptable term. The point of it is, This is one example. The Tower of Babel and the city around it is one example in a long line, whether it's Babylon itself, whether it's Cain's city called Enoch, whether it's Nineveh, whether it's uh, Rome, whether it's Jerusalem at certain points in history, or Tyre, or Sidon, or Sodom, or Gomorrah. There's all these cities that they do occasionally produce good things, But by and large, they are these engines of evil that just destroy everything around them and produce these horrible human beings that do horrible things and they dishonor God. And the Tower of Babel is just one more example and a heavily symbolic example. And God's response to it is I'm going to scatter them, which reads like punishment. But I don't think it is. Now, I've been talking for a hot minute. Part of that is because Martin's been cutting in and out a little bit. I think he's back now. So, Martin, I don't know how much of that you could hear, but do you want to give kind of a reply to that or any other observations you have? And then we'll talk really briefly about God's punishment for the people.
0: Yeah. So, for the most part, it makes sense. This is something I've never heard of before, guys. So, this is the first time I'm hearing it, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Cities tend to do bad things, I think, for the most part, it's because you get enough people together and they start to, you know, not have great ideas, um, especially men. I was at camp this week and one of the female leaders shared her functioning theory, which is where one man is, they have one brain. Where two men are, they share half a brain. Where three men are, they share a third of a brain and so forth. Um, And so people tend I think to... That is true. I lived in a dorm long enough to confirm. Yeah. People tend to, you know, not have the best of ideas while in large groups. But, yeah, cities seem to symbolize something not necessarily evil, but they tend to do a lot of bad things, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um,
1: If you guys want more on cities, because there is a lot more to it, most of that information, if not all of it, most of the information I just shared came from a series, the Bible project did. That's like eight to 10 hours of content total. It's pretty long, but definitely worth the time. Listen to it on your commutes when you're not listening to us. But they did a series Bible project podcast on the theme of the city in scripture. And yeah, the city isn't always evil because revelation like new creation is described as being like a city, the new Jerusalem, the Holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven, adorned like a bride. But the thing that's, Different about that city is it is run and operated by God, and while it has walls and it has gates, the gates are never closed because there's no threat to it. And those are like the fundamentally different things. It's run by God. The Lamb is described as its light, so Christ is its light. It doesn't need the sun because because Christ is its light, and it has gates, but it doesn't use them. They're just like pieces of art. They're made out of precious stones made out of pearls, if I remember correctly. And they're just these beautiful works of art, but they don't have to close because they don't have to protect you from anything. So there's fundamental differences with God's city and with our cities, our cities produce bad things and they occasionally produce good, but they mostly produce bad. God's city only produces good and cannot be threatened by anything because God protects it. But yeah, the Tower of Babel sits in that long line of not good cities that produce largely evil things. And it's a reminder, I think, to us. Not only about pride and arrogance, but just about our capacity for evil. When you read the Tower of Babel, you should think of all of these stories of people grouping together and doing horrible things, whether that's Sodom and Gomorrah, whether that's the later city of Babylon and all the things it does, whether that's the Assyrian people and all the horrible things they do, or the people of Jerusalem and all the horrible things the prophets have to call them out on. And that same sort of theming, applies to us today like we are really good as human beings at getting together and having not just bad ideas but really hurtful and harmful ideas and causing a lot of damage to those around us so this story is a a warning i don't want to beleaguer this point too much but i do want to talk briefly about the quote punishment at the end I don't think this punishment is like the kind of punishment where it's like, you did bad and now I'm going to hurt you. I don't think that's what God is doing. They're building a great tower. They're they're building a city, even though that's not explicitly stated, you don't build a tower outside of a city. They're not just building a tower in the middle of a field. They're building a city with this great tower, this great, potentially this great ziggurat. So they're building this massive fortified, because remember an air is a walled city, a fortress. That's what the word means. So they're building a walled city with a giant ziggurat, and they're attempting to trap Yahweh in it, potentially. That's that's maybe what's going on there. So why do you build a city like this? Why do you build a giant walled city and then try to trap a god within it? The answer is because you're trying to build an empire. So they're not just going to build a city and then all sit there together and be like, look at what wonderful architects we are. Everyone will remember us now. The way that they're going to be remembered is by conquering their neighbors. So that that's why they're trapping a god, because you want the god to give you power, and Yahweh seems to, by early people, be conceived of as a fertility deity, a storm deity, or a war deity, uh, or some combination thereof. So they're attempting to trap this deity they think is going to help them in battle. That That's very potentially what's going on there. And they're definitely building a walled city that will serve as the capital city of some great empire. And when you look forward in history, because remember the Tower of Babel in the plains of Shinar, this is Babylon. This is the city of Babylon that's being constructed here. When you look forward in history, Babylon does become the seat of a great evil empire that enslaves and kills and pillages its neighbors for the sake of power. So I think the point of the punishment here is God is, within this story, the way that this story is told, In Genesis chapter 11 is seeing a group of people who are attempting to cause great harm to those around them and he's saying oh no you don't and that is merciful because it protects the people who would otherwise be harmed but it's also merciful to the people who are doing the harming because God is stopping them from committing a grave sin that will be held to their account one day he's actually protecting them from doing what is right in their own eyes he's stopping them from sinning. And God doesn't always do this. Sometimes he just says, "Well, if you want to sin, go ahead and sin." And you know, in, in Exodus, he even hardens Pharaoh's heart and pushes him to sin even more. But sometimes God steps in and prevents people from doing the wrong thing. So this punishment at the end, I don't think that it's really punishment. I think it's mercy. It's God saying, "I see what's happening here, and it's horrible and it's wrong and it's evil, and I'm going to stop it so that no one gets hurt." And so the people that are trying to do this don't end up sinning worse than they already have. So I think the Tower of Babel, ultimately, the lesson is avoid pride and arrogance, do things God's way. And when God sees the construction of an evil empire, whether he does it early in the process or late in the process, as he sometimes does, sooner or later, he will put a stop to it.
0: Yeah. So on that note, I think we're ready to wrap up. Right, Jason? Yeah, I think so.
1: There's oh, there's more to the story, but like I said, if you want more, go listen to this podcast by The Bible Project. Tim Mackey's smarter than I'll ever be, but if you feel like this just helped a little bit and you're happy here, then glad I could condense his excellent teaching a little
0: bit. All right. So we want to thank you guys for listening. We know we're not always the most interesting, but we appreciate that you guys stick around. So... If you like us, give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. If you have something that you want us to talk about, then go ahead and send us an email to realpockettheology at gmail.com or send Jason or I a text or a message on Facebook, either one, and we would love to talk about those things. So I think we have a couple that we have been asked about that we haven't done yet. So, we'll have to plan some of those out. Um, Thank you guys again, and we appreciate you all listening to us. We'll have you check in with us next week.